You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and please be seated. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center, and you're listening to the Cyberlawn Business Report here on Webmaster Radio. Um, we got a very good show for you. Um, we're going to start off with some headlines. Um, many of you may have heard the state of California has passed, or at least sent to the governor's desk, um, a, a budget that includes the what is a provision what has been known as the Amazon tax. That would allow the state to um, define who is a um, who is doing business in the state of California um, and who has to collect sales tax, uh, which would has caused a lot of controversy in the states, a number of states that have considered it so far. Um, but it would be the, probably the, the, be the largest state yet to adopt it. Um, in addition, other headlines include Right Haven. Um, the infamous copyright troll that has been um, going after bloggers big and small um, in Colorado and Nevada um, has been getting, I, I think that according the legal term would be an ass whooping. And um, they, are, they are being shut down in Colorado and Nevada, and we'll be talking about that. Um, so the, and finally, um, last week we had, um, we had the Congressman Rohrbacker on to talk about the um, the patent reform legislation, and that actually is on the House of Representatives floor as we speak, and there will be amendments to remove some of the more controversial language, including language dealing with um, what um, Congressman Rohrbacker and others have referred to as a, another um, a stealth bank bailout. But we'll be dealing with that in the second half hour. Uh, in the f- this half hour, though, we have um, kind of a privacy legend. 
Um, his background is, is quite unique. He was a member of the New York State Assembly. He was uh, head of the Department of Consumer Affairs under Mayor Giuliani in New York. Um, he's been the, the chief privacy officer for um, companies such as DoubleClick and AOL. And now he is the director of the Future of Privacy Forum. Um, his name is Jules Polonetsky, um, and he's one of the most widely respected people in privacy today and generally a thought leader on the topic. And so, Jules, do we have you on? Bennett, thank you for that very gracious uh, introduction. You're making me feel real old, but uh, the reality <laughs> is that concern about technology and privacy well, is Well, at least I really saw one, one program you did where the guy said, what is it? Can't you hold the job? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the technology changes and the concerns change. Uh, they're the same each time. There's, there's some new kind of tracking. There's some new sort of... Uh, ad model, uh, there are some new features that, that people like, and then there are new things that, that people worry about. And so uh, you really do need to uh, keep the same values, but, but go. Uh, you have a unique background in that you've worked both on the industry side, but also um, from on the consumer side as well, you know, with work with the state of New York. And also, in some ways, the way you translated that um, in your work in um, in-house with you know companies like AOL, for example, um, you're, 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 you've gained a lot of fame for um, your use of the Penguin to try to explain certain aspects of privacy at AOL. Um, I've been what I think at least has been remarkably consistent. I, I grew up in um, in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, a very sort of blue-collar, hard-working area where where um, you know people uh, didn't mind shopping, didn't mind entertainment. But they wanted to get a fair deal. They worked hard for their dollars, and and they wanted the streets to be clean and 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 businesses to to treat them right. They didn't want to get ripped off. Um, they understood that you, you might make money selling them things, but that's a fair deal. And so. Both growing up in that neighborhood with with parents who had to work hard for for what they could uh, uh, earn and spend, uh, and then as a state legislator representing those people in that uh, citywide in New York, my kind of gut always was um, treat people fairly. Um, no no chutzpah was the word we used in New York, an old Jewish expression. You know, don't don't be um, arrogant and um, uh, and and treat people with sort of gall uh, in how you act. And so I've been lucky enough that. Um, whether I was on the government payroll or I was on the industry payroll, uh, I kind of got to make that case. Uh, but, but, you know, trying to do something practical at the end, not looking to shut down um, uh, businesses, but, but just get things to work better. Or um, on the industry side, I, I was looking at these that said, uh, we want to get this right. Um, we don't want uh, to be told to go uh, and that what we do is evil. Uh, do you think what we do is evil? Well, no, I think this can be done right. Um, and their goal was to um, figure out uh, the, a fair and reasonable way. Uh, I don't know if we always achieve that. Clearly, when it comes to online tracking, the controversy still uh, rages. Uh, industry, I think, has progressed. Um, you know, when you and I first met uh, probably a decade ago, uh, the debate was all about uh, cookies and tracking and browsers and tailored ads. And here we are 10 years later, and we're debating do not track and cookies. Should they be opt-in uh, as the Europeans seem to want? Or, or you know, how can you do better? Um, so it, it feels like Groundhog Day to some degree. Um, but but I, see, I certainly have seen an industry uh, evolution. There, there certainly are those on the industry side who, who uh, react to every new proposal by government or by advocates or by consumer groups as, oh, the sky will fall in, the Internet will break, there will be no advertising. 
Um, But I think the responsible companies that want to be leaders are saying, you know what, Uh, we're using a lot of data. Uh, We're opening things in a way that was very controversial years ago. We're tracking a wide range of what you do. We're buying and selling, you know, user data on uh, stock exchanges uh, with algorithms. Um, Maybe we can do more people uh, that we're trying to show them a useful experience uh, and that we're not creeping them out. Um, today, I think uh, a lot of users still are, are skeptical, still are on the, I think this is creepy side. I believe it's doable in a fair at telling me without me having to read a privacy policy that they're tracking my books. I mean, that's a pretty sensitive thing. What books? Librarians in Washington are the biggest privacy advocates around. You know, they don't want the government knowing mm-hmm. what you're looking for, what you're browsing. But we all seem to be pretty okay with Amazon having a good look at Oh, all of our reading, Owen's reading, and, and hey, here's what we think is going on everything we know about you. We're happy when Netflix does it. Um, what can be done to other websites uh, and other services we use aware that they are pretty smart. They're, they're Amazon. They're, they're Netflix. They're doing a lot of customization directly with their analytics providers helping them with their ad networks. How can they into that and say to users, we're here to serve you, opposed to we're here to think to you in return for the content? Um, There's still people who don't like that, but I think, frankly, that's the solution to some of the uh, privacy stress that's out there, and, and it's a way to bridge to the, uh, the Europeans who obviously have deep views about privacy as a, as a right. Now, can you tell us a little bit, what is the future of privacy forum? I mean, it's only been around, what, for two years now? We're about two, two and a half years old. Um, when I was uh, at AOL, uh, one of the things I thought was, was missing was uh, any organizations that were in the middle of this debate. There were certainly groups that thought that data use was bad and the government would get it all and that everyone was evil and tracking and surveilling you and, and uh, uh, needed to be pushed back against. And there certainly were trade groups that thought everything was fine and the government will break the Internet and self-regulation is working, just give us more time. Um, but I found that my fellow chief privacy officers or, or privacy lawyers who wanted to do things right or practical advocates and reasonable academics were in the middle. We, we felt the value of Facebook and of sharing data, but we wanted things to be done uh, a little bit uh, uh, in a way that was maybe a bit more consumer-friendly, that gave people a bit more control, a sense of the value that they were getting. And I didn't think it, it existed. Um, occasionally, various groups would, would trend towards the middle, but we didn't think there was a good place for the middle to meet. And so we, together with my co-chair, uh, Chris Wolf, uh, founded uh, this thing with the express intention of being a place that convenes the practical solutions. You know, that's where the Federal Trade Commission ends up at the end of the day. That's where the legislators end up at the beginning of the day. They've they got to make those hard compromises. And so we try to figure out how can you do things better? How can you not shut businesses down? But how can you do the things that a lot of the chief privacy officers, frankly, want to do? It's on their checklist, and their company perhaps agrees. Um, but it's item number 85, and it might not get done. Or maybe their company is ready to do it, but others aren't, and so it doesn't happen. Uh, or maybe the publishers of the world can do it, but the advertisers aren't on board. There are so many ecosystem issues. The system is so tied together that it can be so hard to get progress. So we do a lot of convening. So we, by definition, we're industry-supported, but our board is split between chief privacy officers, uh, privacy advocacy organizations, and privacy academics. 
So everybody is usually uh, angry at me at any given time of the day, um, but those are the kind of hard decisions to make. You know, um, one of the early projects we had was uh, the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, we do a lot of work with the FTC, um, try to get them the information they want, try to make sure they understand the industry well. Uh, we wanted better indication to users that ads were behaviorally targeted. So we did a bunch of consumer research, uh, and we developed a number of symbols, and then the industry went off and you know, tweaked it and, and turned it into these, uh, this self-regulation program where users are now are starting to see this forward eye that leads to an opt-out and some more information about what's going on. Um, we're optimistic. We'll see whether uh, companies treat it seriously and, and try to show that they can self-regulate it. I think if they don't, they'll, they'll, they'll show that they can. Um, do not track has become a popular idea. FTC chairman uh, proposed it a while ago. Um, Firefox and Internet Explorer both have versions of it built in, and nobody knows exactly what it means. And the industry argues it'll shut the, the Internet down. Uh, the advocates want it to block all collection and interfere with all advertising. We're trying to work with the Hill and with um, companies to figure out something useful. Uh, maybe it should mean how about an easy way to turn off those behavioral ads uh, because today you've got to uh, opt out by getting an opt-out cookie uh, and if you lose your opt-out cookie, you're back in uh, and people are tracking you with more than just cookies. And so uh, the, the way that you can today turn off the tracking for behavioral use is not that effective. Perhaps do not track could at least do that and maybe more. So we're trying to um, navigate uh, that um, uh, that definition so that it turns out to be something that's useful to users, um, but something that responsible businesses can implement in a way that uh, is productive. Now, the, the whole question of behavioral advertising and, and the do not track type proposals, I mean, there, there must be um, at least a dozen different groups in Washington, you know, focusing on that. And uh, what's interesting about your group is actually you, see, you are involved in that, you know, nonetheless. But you have also started um, addressing some of the more the newer emerging issues in privacy, and one of them is um, stuff like um, the apps that are being used in smartphones. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to there? Well, we all love apps, right? Billions of apps have been downloaded, and some of those are put out by large developers like Playdom, which belongs to Disney and Zynga and so forth. And then um, many, many of those apps are built by um, a 16-year-old kid in a garage or a Ukrainian devout or just anybody in between. And some policy side on the Hill and consumer world uh, have developed around, well, what are those apps doing with all that data? And all that data it is, right? We're giving apps access uh, to our Facebook uh, information, we're giving apps access to our mobile data, our location sometimes, our contacts, um, the ability to make you know, calls from our phone, turn on our microphone. Who's placing those apps, uh, A, to educate them about what their responsibilities are to keep data secure and keep data mm -hmm. private, uh, and then B, um, who's chasing the bad apps and making sure they get kicked off the platforms? And so, you know, Facebook is doing its share, and Apple is doing its share, and the carriers are involved and the like. But the apps themselves, frankly, are the ones who need to take responsibility for their own activity. So we have built a uh, site called applicationprivacy.org, uh, and Facebook and AT&T and Sprint and others are pointing their developers towards it. Uh, of course, the first thing they do is uh, require that the developers 
who are building apps for their platforms agree to a terms of service that, that have various privacy requirements. But beyond that, they say, well, hey, go take a look at this. Uh, this is a site that will teach you more. We're going to add a privacy generator. Um, Senator uh, Franken has been insisting that um, apps have privacy policies, and he'd like um, Apple, Google, Android to force the apps to have privacy policies. Now, whether or not they should be forcing them or whether there ought to be a law, certainly apps ought to be pulling up those policies, um, not because the policy is a great way to really tell people what's going on, but it's the first step. I mean, you've got to figure out what your practices are and put yourself on the hook um, to consumers and put yourself on the hook to the FTC by documenting them. That's step one, right? Then we can figure out how to make sure people actually understand it and, and that you can give them the key smaller bits of information when they need it, but you've got to at least have one. So if I'm a 16-year-old, I think the top app, uh, uh, the top free app on, um, uh, on, uh, in the iTunes store for a while was uh, some sort of bubble-popping one built by a 14-year-old kid. So who's going to write his privacy policy if Senator Franken forces the platforms to, to not take the app until it has a good privacy policy? His mother, his father, or is he just going to copy it from some other app? So we're trying to push the resources out there so that this app economy, which has been so exciting, um, can get some of the tools it needs um, uh, and so that the companies involved can cooperate. You know, there have been concerns around apps sending data to mobile ad networks um, like the user's device ID, which is certainly a bit sensitive. It's, you can't delete it. You can't erase it. Um, you can't easily opt out of, of tracking that's uh, using that device ID. And so... We need to see some cooperation between the platforms, the device makers, the apps, the mobile ad networks, so that you know they can earn some money selling ads on those apps, but let users who don't want to be profiled and tracked and appended you know, have some say over it. Uh, I'm a little less worried than some in the industry that um, providing these tools will send people fleeing. Um, today, Mozilla has a do not track option in the latest version of its browser, and very, very few people are taking advantage of it. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, uh, industry, I think, should worry more about users being nervous about downloading apps or nervous about the fact that so many users delete cookies or their antivirus deletes cookies um, or, hey, if they use Safari, Safari limits third-party you know, cookie use for robust tracking. So there's a lot of reasons why people are kind of out. We don't need to worry that some of them are going to trigger the do not track. Uh, we ought to lean into it and say, here's what we're doing for you. Um, this is, this is um, something useful. Uh, why would you want to turn it off? But, but we need to get our act together and, and show them that we're doing something responsible. Now, uh, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the whole question of privacy in the mobile space and you know, what, what type of privacy policy do you develop um, for mobile apps? Do you have the full um, shebang, or you actually have something, an abbreviated version, and then, and then how does that translate to what we should be doing on, on the web itself? So when we come back, Jules Polonetsky, Future Privacy Forum. We'll be right back. So when we come back, Stay Jules Polonetsky, Future Privacy Forum. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Forum. Report we'll right after this brief recess for our sponsors. So we come Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrand. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. 
Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. If you're looking for a new multifaceted SEO and social media tool set, look for the Raven. Raven has the important tools that every internet marketer needs. Raven offers customized metrics for managing link building campaigns, social media campaigns, with campaign reporting and research tools that you can easily manage. Build up campaign performance for your clients and give your team the tools that will make them soar. If you want to increase your internet marketing revenue, look for The Raven. Go to raventools.com. That's raventools.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Ecom Experts, Mondays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back with Jules Polineski with the Future Privacy Forum. Um, Jules, you, you raised some interesting points about um, privacy policies for mobile apps. What should a privacy policy for a mobile app look like? Certainly, it ought to include a couple of key things. And, and I want to separate telling people about what's going on and a privacy policy. Okay. Privacy policy is that legal document which I want you to have because it means you inventoried your practices and you promised the authorities that if you, you know, are, are out of sync with what you've promised, uh, they can take action. And so I want that document to have a lot of detail. Uh, I want it to have a way that people can opt out of your sharing of perhaps what they're doing there with a mobile ad network or others. Um, I want them to have some information about what you might be doing with their location. I think separately, the harder piece, right? And we know how to write those policies, right? We don't know how to make people understand them, but we know how to write them. Um, so let's start with that. Then the second question You're is... You understand them? Someone never told me that. <laughs> the second question is, how do we actually give people what they want to know when they want to know it without giving them too much of an interruption and, and, and confusing them, uh, without making right. them click around and, and interfering with what they want to do, but giving them the key stuff where they need it, when they need it. Um, people are trying to start achieving that on the web with icons, with uh, layered policies, with other stuff. How do you do that in the mobile environment where I don't care how short the privacy policy is, I don't want to click on a link, you know, after I'm uh, trying to decide to download an app or I've downloaded it and I got to read stuff. Um, I may not even understand 
why they want what they're asking for until I'm in the app and uh, I might want to be asked, hey, would you now like to share your location so that we can tell you, you know, what's near you here, there, and elsewhere. That I think is really tough. So we're, we're doing some work on that. Do people want to hear their policy? Right? Um, uh, maybe they do, maybe they don't. A lot of folks walking around and, and they're not putting that smartphone to their ear all that often. They're, they're texting and they're, they're surfing and they're doing stuff and they may not want to hear some key stuff. Do they want to push a button to opt out? Don't you know, dial one to, uh, uh, to opt out? I don't think anybody knows. So we're working with Yahoo uh, and with um, uh, a couple of companies and some designers, which is, I think, the interesting point. Um, with all the respect to all of us lawyers, uh, we, we kind of showed how good we are at, at writing comprehensible uh, you know, user communication. So let's, let's put the lawyers on the side for a second. And we've got a design group, and we said to them, figure out what it is people actually want to know. Maybe we don't want to tell them, we use cookies and pixels and blah, blah, blah. They've seen it everywhere. Maybe they don't want to hear, we value your privacy. What is it that when I'm using a smartphone and um, I'm, I'm downloading an app or I'm going to a site, what key stuff might I want to know and what's the best way to give it to me? Here's one example. There have been some complaints about you know, Apple and location because of some of the stories around how Apple was storing location on the phone and so forth. But one thing I like, and, and obviously our Apple folks are, are you know, the design gurus who, who we uh, can look to for, for some uh, insight in a lot of other consumer uh, engagements. So maybe we can encourage them to do a bit more on the privacy side. One thing that they have done on the privacy side that I like is when your location is being sent to um, uh, an app, you get a little arrow, I guess I call it a glyph, um, that indicates to you location is going. And then you can go ahead and get an inventory of anyone who has recently accessed your location. So the hard question is, who should have a right to get that location? Um, I downloaded a bunch of apps the other day, and I clicked yeah, 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 to whatever they all wanted. I was in a rush. Um, and I checked the other day, since Apple gives you this uh, ability, which of them were recently accessing my location? And one of them was a battery manager. You know, it, it kind of just helps you recharge and know how low your battery is a little more effectively than the current built-in one. And it, it, it's been accessing my location. It has no location features. I guess it must have asked. I probably said yes, but I, you know, I don't think I was paying attention. And I'm thinking, why is this thing accessing my location? Is it going to like, is it going to tell me where to plug, you know, my phone in to charge it up? I mean, that would be nice, but it didn't do that. And of course, it, it was because the ads. It was a free app, and it was being supported by, you know, targeted ads. I guess it would have been nice to know about that. I'd been fine with it, but I was all suspicious because, you know, they hadn't told me. So I think there are a couple of key things. Who are you giving this information to? What choices do I have? And let's leave the rest of it, you know, for people who want to see it elsewhere. Um, but I don't think we know the answer to that yet. You know, do, do people want to get a text with the key info? Um, I, I don't think they want to be interrupted. Uh, we, know, we know that well from the web world, and clearly more so when you've got sluggish speeds or, you know, you're just in a rush or you're using your thumbs. Um, so I think we need to figure that out. But I, I want the designers who we tell, hey, friend, just like it's your job to make sure that kind of how to use the app and, and that, you know, you can monetize it and that it's usable. Data is part of your usability mission. Uh, and those folks will figure it out. And they'll come up with ways that I think none of us uh, anticipated. Um, you know, it's a real surprise when you ask users. When we were working on designing this symbol uh, for websites to put on ads, 
we worked closely with the Federal Trade Commission, and the FTC said to us, here's what we'd like you to test. Put on the ad a message. Why this ad? Why did I get this ad? And we said, well, I don't think that's that friendly, but okay, we'll test it. Um, and we tested it. And sure enough, people hated it. Even though it sounded like the most obvious question, why did I get this ad? Uh, people said, what are you asking me a question? Tell me something. If I want to know more, then I'll decide to click. But you, what is this, a joke or a quiz? And then I got to click on the question to find out whether I even care what the answer is. And then what if I can't click back and I get a pop-up and you know, you've interrupted me. And so you learn stuff when you actually ask users, uh, and I think we need to be much more consumer-driven. And then if you don't like a law or you don't like a proposal, you can stand up to the senator or congressman and say, you know what, I'm trying to please my users, and here's what they're telling me, and I know better. Today we have you know, chaos in Washington. We've got senators and congressmen saying, here's what users want. They want to click a lot of times, and they want to be told a lot of detail about everything. Um, I think, frankly, we'd, we would ignore that if we started getting those. I don't know. I updated iTunes the other day on my, uh, uh, my phone in order to you know, download some apps, and there was, I don't know, it was a lot of pages. And I just said yes. So that's what happens, I think, when you get a lot of detail. So we've got to get that sweet spot between usability and privacy. I mean, do you think it's going to be icon-driven, you know, such as um, I know when you, like on TV, when something tells you this is a – you know, this program has, you know, um, language, nudity, or, what, you know, whatever, adult content. You know, there's those little icons um, be before the show starts. I'd like um, to say it's going to be UI-driven, right? An icon is just one possible way. But the user interface that we look at when we interact with sites and services um, has got to have data use as a key part of that. And once we tell the designers who work really hard, and some of them are really good, right? At, and some, some are not as good, but, but those that are successful at making their products easy to use uh, so that the features and tools are there, need to integrate data into it. And there are folks who are really good at it, right? They, we get in a car, we know where everything is. Um, well, you might have to look around and figure out how to turn the lights on and, and your emergency blinker, but the other stuff, even though it's different, it kind of seems to be where it is. Um, and, you know, the car, well, that's like this machine of death here. It's this thing you can kill people. It's dangerous. But we, we rent them and we get in them and we don't read the driver's manual. We kind of drive. And so we need to figure out the driver's manual uh, to use the features, including the data features. So my argument is let's featureize data use, because otherwise we're going to spend all our time fighting about privacy, fighting about how little data can you give companies, how can companies not have stuff. Well, they want to have stuff. And many of us want them to have stuff if they're using it in ways that are pleasing to us. And yes, that can even mean letting them make some money if the service is free, but we got to know what's going on. We've got to be comfortable they're not using it to discriminate against us or hand um, uh, it to, to companies that are going to use it in some adverse way. And we haven't done a good enough job at making those rules really clear. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm a sports guy because I'm at sports pages. It's another thing to say, I'm the Viagra guy. Um, I'm the person uh, researching breast cancer. And we haven't done a good job on the industry side at saying, you know, there are things that are off limits. Um, we don't want to freak people out. We don't want to get them uncomfortable. We really want to please them because that's how we're going to succeed. If we don't, don't worry about the hill. 
Don't worry about the legislators. Don't worry about the privacy advocates. Don't worry about users who will have the technologies available to them to break your business model. We've seen that in every area, right? We've seen that in music. People were stealing what they could until there were easy ways for them to pay and get what they wanted. We see that, you know, we see the browsers reacting to consumers and to policy and, and starting to, you know, add features that can interfere with advertising. So the only solution, I think, long term for companies in a world where users are increasingly empowered is to make sure those users are really happy campers uh, because over time, uh, if you don't, they'll figure out how to uh, assert themselves back into control. That's what Web 2.0 has been about, and, and clearly that's where Web 3.0 uh, will uh, uh, ensure uh, additional control. Now, the future of privacy forums are very active in terms of you know, scheduling events to you know, promote awareness and, and to further debate on privacy issues. What are some of the events you have coming up? So our events are usually focused at policymakers, at, at the people who are uh, using your data. We don't do a lot of mass general public uh, type uh, activity, although our stuff is always available. Um, we are in the midst of uh, working with a whole range of companies around um, defining do not track. Um, we are in the midst of uh, working uh, with a group of companies to set best practices around the smart grid. Um, we are working on a September or October event around reputation. You know, we spend so much time talking about privacy online and Facebook um, and, and how can we batten down the hatches and should people delete their profiles. We don't spend enough time talking about how um, people can or should um, and need to have better tools to manage their online reputation. And that's about Facebook. It's about companies like reputation.com and Intellius. Um, and uh, Google has even recently launched, uh, right? Uh, I think it's Google Me or About Me, uh, a way to do a better job at keeping track what's said about you online. Today, you know, you described my many jobs, but I think that's typical for the uh, younger generation today. Um, people don't go to one company and spend 30 years and get a pension anymore. You're a brand. Um, you really are a brand. And how can you use Facebook and LinkedIn and uh, uh, how you show up in, in Google uh, to manage your brand? Uh, Microsoft did a survey that we helped release last year on Data Privacy Day where they actually talked to uh, the HR people at companies. Almost all, 70 or 80%, I believe it was, said, sure, we Google people. Sure, we check out their Facebook profiles if there's info we can see. Uh, a company just this week uh, was uh, told by the FTC that if employers are using uh, their uh, Facebook background checking service, uh, they should treat it like a credit reporting agency and, and keep the data for seven years. So you're being checked mm. out. Um, what are you doing? Not so much am I protecting my privacy, although part of it is obviously is making sure stuff's not hanging out there that you don't want hanging out there. But being invisible or having a blank slate today, uh, if you're applying for a job, people are checking you out and you've got new history, well, they're going to worry about that almost as much as, uh, as, as seeing you must be in the you witness know, protection some, some wild and crazy pictures. <laughs> now, you, very, very quickly, you mentioned one thing um, that a lot of, some of our listeners might not be familiar with, and that was the smart grid. You know, in, a, in a nutshell, what, what, what is that? And what are the, well, how does that relate to privacy? 
throughout the company, throughout the country, utilities are upgrading the power system to make it two-way. Today, uh, you call them and you tell them the power's out, and, and they say, well, yeah, someone called us already. Um, turning the electricity utility delivery system into one that actually is internet-based and lets the utility know your power's out, uh, lets you know how much you're using when, and helps provide signals that let you better manage your power. If you're putting your dishwasher through the same time that you got your washer and dryer on, you're creating a peak event that forces the utility to have a lot of capacity available, a lot of pollution, a lot of you know wasted uh, potential uh, energy that's got to be you know ginned up um, uh, and then wasted because it's not used. Uh, if we show users and help them, and frankly tie it into their home networks so that they can turn lights on and off remotely, turn alarm systems on and off, manage, um, uh, you know, order your household to put the dishwasher through at the optimal time. Um, privacy folks always joked about how one day your refrigerator was going to tell the grocery, you know, to ship you milk because uh, you were out, uh, and that hasn't happened yet, right? Right now my wife texts me and says, you finished the milk, jerk, why don't you buy some? Um, <laughs> you know, but, but there are already refrigerators that are put out by Whirlpool and GE that communicate with your washing machine, and your fridge won't make ice when your wash is going through, because why does it need to, right? Let it do it in the middle of the night. Um, let it make ice, you know, at a convenient economic time. And so that's going to be great, and it's been a big priority of the Obama administration, but that also means that somebody is going to be collecting a lot of data about what you do, not just what websites you visit and what searches you do, which is the online world, or where you are with your you know, cell phone, but where you are in your house and what you're doing with what kind of device when. And when I say what kind of device when, you name the kind of device, uh, it can be fingerprinted, and in the future, a lot of these devices will be on your network, so they'll intentionally be identifying themselves. So we need to figure out the rules. California has been one of the leaders. Their public utility commission is working on setting some rules around that today, uh, and states throughout the country and at the federal level are trying to debate um, how to make sure that utilities can make that data accessible to consumers and that consumers can give it to, well, their home network or other third parties, um, but without creating a gigantic Pandora's box of uh, household data being available to the government, being available to any marketer willy-nilly. No, um, it's funny. I, I actually spoke with a, a assemblywoman in Sacramento, who, um, and it was one of her priorities was to make the Sacramento, the um, capital in Sacramento, um, a smart building. And I just said, you know, with all due respect, madam, um, people have been trying that for a hundred years without success. <laughs> but um, Jules, it's been great having you, and um, you, you guys are just doing a, an, an excellent job out there and in, in raising awareness and and and, and bringing. Um, a, People to discuss, you know, the emerging issues in privacy, not just the ones that have been out there for a while. And um, so, it's it's a pleasure to have you, and I, I can congratulate you on everything you've done. And one last question is: is um, are you still in touch with the penguin? <laughs> the penguin was uh, an interesting idea during my AOL days, as uh, just sort of a cute way to try to tell people that uh, you know they were being tracked. Um, our goal here is to you know uh, let designers come up with uh, better, funnier, more engaging ways. Uh, the penguin, uh, my uh, successor at AOL, uh, now gets custody of the penguin. <laughs> All right, read the latest of the penguin custody fight here at West Westminster <laughs> Radio. All right, Jules, thank you very much, and it's always a pleasure. And I hope you'll come back again. My pleasure. Glad to have a chance. Thank you. We're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we'll go over the headlines. 
Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Our clients have earned over $1 billion. Now it's your turn. With over 20,000 products to promote across a huge variety of niches, ClickBank provides countless ways for any affiliate to make money. You can promote any product immediately. No contracts required. Looking for recurring commissions? Upsell products? ClickBank's got them. And best of all, you can make up to 75% commissions. Ready to become the next ClickBank success story? Sign up now for free at ClickBank. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy to use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with AscenderCart. Learn more about what AscenderCart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T.com. Weapons of Mass Marketing. Presented by Raventools.com. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and um, as we speak on the House floor, the uh, the House members of the House representatives are debating the rule to consider the patent reform legislation that we talked about last week, and um, the way things work um, in the House, unlike the Senate, where you have um, free debate and any member can talk. Um, because there's 500, 435 members. Um, each debate has to have a rule that allows um, so many minutes for each each amendment, and so right now they're actually de- you have to approve the rule before you can then debate. And so right now they're debating the rule, and uh, the rule will allow for um, amendments to the bill by um, Congressman Rohrabacher and others that will address some of the issues that he raised, and then as last week and con- that he was concerned about. One was obviously the the f- the view that the bill was a stealth bank bailout, 
And the other was just the, the, the concern of the switch from having a patent um, priority be based on uh, when you filed rather than um, who, when you invented. And he, he believed that that would favor large com- companies over um, smaller inventors because the larger companies would have their resources to you know, quickly generate a filing as opposed to um, a small inventor who obviously may, you know, may not have the resources or may not even be aware initially of what he has to do. Um, so, and also just as a to highlight, I actually wrote a little bit about this topic over the weekend um, on Huffington Post. Um, I wrote a piece about whether or not this on the bank bailout issue um, and, and the patent reform and, and raised the question actually. Um, three years ago, this issue was considered and the, the banks were seeking a, an amendment that would have allowed them, the, allowed them to avoid paying any damages for their infringement of um, a patent involving the um, check processing. And that's what this is all about. The amendments that, that, we're, that we're talking about only relate to um, financial institutions and patents involving check processing. So it's, it's a, an end run around the litigation process and then having you know, Congress um, protect them. And the Congressional Research Service did an analysis of the bill and found that if it was enacted, um, they would have the, the government would have a liability of a billion dollars because it would, be const- it would be deemed a taking of property. And under the Constitution, if you take property, um, you must compensate the um, owner of the property for that use. You know, as, as we frequently we see in the, con- in the context of eminent domain, where property is deemed eminent domain and then um, purchased, and then you have you know a highway or a park or whatever. And so, you know, basically, the banks were saying, Congress, um, help us, you know, shield us from all liability, and oh, by the way, you make it a billion dollar tab with it. Well, that was sufficient three years ago for. Um, that proposal to die and actually get drops from the, um, the version of the patent reform legislation then. But for some reason now, um, although the, the, the current um, amendment doesn't go as far as um, the one three years ago, it, it somehow has gotten um, this far past the Senate and on the verge of being passed by the House with very little debate. And so you know, what has changed in three years that to warrant um, such a such a shift in the position on the amendment, and um, the one thing that has changed actually is that the banks are significantly larger and have more power. Because it certainly isn't that they're um, they're in, in a better position to ask for such relief because they've gotten bail. You know, this is be- three years ago when then Congress rejected the proposals before there were any bank bailouts, and now in the last three years we've had several um, several of them. And at the same time, we've also had you know, a whole wealth of um, evidence of you know, malfeasance in the financial sector from you know, forging um, documents to proceed with um, foreclosures and or to you know, not using, using some of the bailout money not for the purpose of injecting capital into our, you know, to Main Street, but rather to pay for corporate jets, or in one case, I think it was a CEO's bathroom. So... Um, you have that three years later, um, but yet somehow we're, we're willing to um, give the bank something we weren't willing to do three years ago. And uh, you often hear the context of, you know, have banks become too big to fail? And in this context, maybe the question is, have they become too big to govern? Because if we're unwilling to actually say no to the banks in a situation like this, 
Um, you know, when would we be willing or able to say no? And um, so it's it's a it's an interesting question, and we'll have to see what happens on the debate, um, which probably will begin um, within the next hour um, once they pass the rule. A big headline, though, this week was in California the the Assembly and the Senate twice passed legislation that included in their budget um, an Amazon tax provision. Very briefly, what it is an Amazon tax? It is not taxing, uh, taxing very large women. It is actually um, under the Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, you're allowed to tax um, internet sales, excuse me, interstate sales, only if that person, that company, has um, a nexus with that state, and that usually has been interpreted. If you have a physical presence in the state, then you have a nexus with the state, and so you, your sales to that state. You know, for example, if I'm in um, Arizona and I'm selling to California, um, I have a duty to collect tax on sales to California if I have some physical presence um, in the state of California. What happened several years ago is the state of New York um, passed a bill that reinterpreted um, what that nex- what constituted that nexus, and it said that if you are selling on the internet, but you are paying commissions to affiliates in the state for sales generated through the internet, then th- that is considered a nexus, and that will require you to collect sales tax. And, when, and so as a result, um, when New York passed the Amazon tax, they got um, substantial revenue, I believe something in the neighborhood of 50 to $100 million the first year. And um, given that we've been in a recession and the states have been cash-strapped, um, that was a significant infusion and caused several other states to follow. Um, the next one was the state of Rhode Island. Um, although what happened in Rhode Island and also what happened in New York to a lesser extent is... Um, Companies like Amazon and Overstock just simply terminated their affiliates in those states. So they had no duty to collect the tax because they had no affiliates in the state. And after Rhode Island came North Carolina, which had had a similar experience. And then we had um, a lull. But then this year we've had um, Arkansas, Connecticut, Vermont. And now it's in California it's gone to the governor's desk. And the first time it went to the governor's desk last week... Um, Governor Brown vetoed the bill. He thought the budget um, wasn't consistent with what he had set out and relied too much on gimmicks. Um, and so do we, do we read that as to refer, being a reference to the Amazon tax provision? But um, I would think not because it went back to the governor, and the governor mentioned that he hoped that Republicans would join Democrats in supporting job creation and ending tax breaks for out-of-state companies. So um, Governor Brown has not signed the budget, but um, you know, he, he definitely has signaled um, what would, appears to be support for the Amazon tax. Now, what will happen if it is adopted in California? At that point, um, you will have states having a, a population, um, states having a um, gross domestic, domestic product, um, and states um, comprising of one-third of the sales tax of the GDP and the population or more of the U.S. And so you know, at, at what point um, do enough states or um, have, have 
adopted a sale, you know, an Amazon tax that it no longer becomes profitable or even feasible to terminate your affiliates in those states. And by the way, one of the states I left out was Illinois, which, which also adopted this year. And so with having that, um, what will happen here in California is, is a matter of great debate and great concern because if Amazon and the others go ahead and proceed in that manner, um, and terminate their affiliates in state, you know, would definitely um, have a, a substantial and devastating impact on that sector in, in California. And it's not a small sector, it's very large. And there, some, there were some estimates that as a result, um, that, could, that could take up to half, if not more, of the expected revenue um, from the Amazon tax uh, would be offset by losses in income in, through the affiliate sector. So the one problem is that there's not a lot of data on the affiliate sector, so it's hard to really measure that. But um, people are definitely watching this bill, and what happens in California will, will definitely signal, I think, how this issue may progress in the years to come. Because if it passes in California, then I think um, a number of other states may be emboldened to do the same. Now, all that being equal, um, we do have um, the state's fiscal situation is somewhat improving. You know, next year is expected to be bad as well. But um, generally, once the, as we recover from the recession, um, the states, there's usually a little lag of a year or two, um, but the state's coffers will, um, will not be as, in, as much in distress next year or the year beyond. And so will they still be looking to an Amazon tax? It's hard to say. Um, but you know, it is um, what they always refer to is a saying, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree. And um, Amazon right now is the guy behind the tree because they're out of state. And um, it seems like an easy um, way to get revenue for states, and that's the issue. Um, we're very short on time, and so um, next week we'll talk about some of the other developments, including Right Haven. But very briefly, I wanted to highlight um, uh, Helena bon- um, Bonner died this, uh, this week. She was the widow of Andrei Sakharov in um, from the, the Russian nuclear scientist. And um, you definitely should look at what she accomplished because before the Internet, um, she was um, the voice for Sakharov and she traveled among the dissident community and um, really did a great work um, in creating a, a, a human rights community in the Soviet Union um, at a time when that was very difficult. And so um, she she definitely was a major historical figure and um, as a we all should um, take a look at what she accomplished. But that's all we have for today. Um, court is adjourned. Thank you for joining us here on the Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica saying um, court is adjourned. And have a good day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.